Well, good morning, everybody. I once met a man. This was back in the 1970s, the early 1970s in California. I once met a man who made fridge magnets with inspirational verses on them. He also made bumper stickers. As I say, this was way back uh, in the 1970s when everybody had bumper stickers on the back of their Cadillacs and so on. But he marketed his, his products to bookstores and grocery stores and homeware stores and pharmacies and even to gas stations. And he donated 10% of the income from these things to his local church. And he told me that when he started his business, he would use verses from all over the Bible. But later he moved exclusively, almost exclusively, to the Psalms. And I nodded sagely and I made some anodyne comment about how the Psalms were a good choice, you know, for fridge magnets because they contain truths that speak into all aspects of people's lives. All human life is there, I said, rather pompously. Oh no, he said, nothing like that. Purely a business opportunity. Stick with the Old Testament and you open up the Jewish market. Well, I felt a little bit deflated by that, I have to say, but I'm pleased to say now that it didn't change my view that the Psalms really do contain truths that speak into every aspect of our lives, to, to joy or pain, to peace or stress, to wealth or poverty, to success or failure. As I said, all human life is here in the Psalms. Now here's my selection of fridge magnet verses from the first five psalms that we've been hearing in, in our summer sermon series. Okay, so these are actually the very last verses of each of those psalms, psalms 1 to 5. And they're the punchlines, so to speak, the take-home messages of these five psalms. So Psalm 1 reminds us that there are two ways to live, in the counsel of the wicked or delighting in the law of the Lord. And if you're wondering which way to choose, well, bear in mind, fridge magnet time, that the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. And Psalm 2, well, it may seem that the whole world is against us, but God is in control. So serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Why? Because blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 3, you may have many enemies rising up against you, but remember, from the Lord comes deliverance. His blessing is on his people. And Psalm 4, are you distressed that people tempt you to love delusions and seek false gods? Well, rest assured, the Lord has set apart his faithful servants for himself, so that in peace, we will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make us dwell in safety. And then in Psalm 5, well, sing for joy. Sing for joy that the Lord hears our voice as we lay our requests before him. Because surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround us with your favor as with a shield. Wonderful, timeless truths presented here for us by King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, but reiterated, of course, throughout Scripture. Wonderful truths about God's gracious, loving, caring, saving, protective relationship with those who love him. And so against this background, 
Psalm 6 comes as a bit of a shock. It's the most intensely emotional psalm so far. The complaints fairly tumble onto the page from the psalmist's pen. I'm faint. My bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. I'm worn out from groaning. I've wet the bed with my tears. My eyesight is failing. The psalmist's absolute confidence in God, as expressed so eloquently in Psalms 1 to 5, seems to have just evaporated. What's happened? Well, clearly David is in an awful place, physically, mentally, and spiritually. It's not clear exactly what his problems were at the time that this psalm was written. He might have been ill, maybe even at death's door. He might have been on the verge of an ignominious military defeat. Or maybe he's committed some grievous sin that he feels desperately guilty about and that he thinks God is punishing him for. Not all the troubles that come our way have a direct link to sins that we might have committed, but some might. And indeed the Bible tells us, in fact probably David tells us, the Hebrews in, in, in Proverbs, that the Lord disciplines those he loves. So perhaps David feels that this is what is happening to him now. And indeed theologians tell us that Psalm 6 is one of several so-called penitential psalms or psalms of confession, songs of personal and communal lament that express despair, grief, anger, protest, and most importantly, repentance. In which case, we can read Psalm 6, not as a random torrent of complaints, but rather as a forthright outpouring of heartfelt remorse and humble penitence. You see, notwithstanding a number, a whole bunch of pretty hair-raising sins during his lifetime, David was a godly man, loved by God. A man, so the prophet Samuel tells us, after God's own heart. The apple of God's eye, as Psalm 17 says. And because of this, David was well aware of the seriousness of his sins, of their ability to jeopardize this close relationship with God. And he was also well aware that he had absolutely no righteousness of his own to plead in mitigation. So the only thing he could do was to cast his whole being, body and soul, humbly on God's grace and mercy. Look how he begins the psalm. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me. David isn't asking to be let off. He doesn't say, Lord, don't rebuke me and don't discipline me. He's saying, in effect, Lord, I know I deserve to be rebuked and disciplined, but when you do it, Lord, please have mercy on me. David pleads with God in two ways. First, he pleads on the basis of God's character. Verse, verse 4, he says, Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Some translations say steadfast love. It's, this, it's God's unchanging covenant love that promises never to let go of us, no matter what happens. 
David doesn't build an argument based on his own character. He doesn't say, let me off this time, God, and I promise I'll be really good for the rest of my life. No. He builds an argument based on God's promise. Because unlike David, unlike us, God can be trusted to keep his promises. There's a line in the hymn Amazing Grace that we've just heard that goes, the Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. And scripture tells us, this is in Romans, that, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In the midst of trouble, we should meditate on the, on the riches of God's glory that are implicit in that little word, good. Second, David pleads for mercy on the basis of his desire to praise God, which at first glance seems rather odd. Verse 10, among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? This is Sheol, the, the place of those who have died in their sins. What's this all about? Well, David believes that it's important to proclaim God's name, to be able to proclaim God's name, to be able to praise him. He would, I'm sure, have agreed with the assertion in the Westminster Shorter Catechism that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The problem is, of course, that we all make mistakes. We do things that definitely don't glorify God and we fail to do things that would glorify God. But David knows that if he is to avoid being among the dead where no one proclaims God's name, he's got to get back into a right relationship with God. And it's the same for us too, of course. If we really believe that the main reason we're alive is to bring joyful praise to God, then whenever we sin, as we inevitably will, we must, like David, pray for deliverance salvation, restoration, to enable us to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then, having done this, rest in his forgiveness. Revel in it. Enjoy it. Look at verses 8 and 9. There's a change in David's tone here, from despair to confidence. Now, as far as we know, nothing has changed in David's circumstances between verse 7 and and verse 8, if David was ill, there's no indication that he's been given medicine. If he was on the verge of a military defeat, there's no evidence that his enemies have packed up and gone home. Nothing has changed except David's understanding of the seriousness of sin. He cries out in verse 8, away from me, all you who do evil. He's renouncing evil here, distancing himself from people and actions that displease God. And he's confident to do that because he knows he's back in the close relationship with God. Verse 9. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. How does he know? Well, I guess it's the prompting of the Holy Spirit. David understands the vital importance of the Holy Spirit. In another of his penitential psalms, this is Psalm 51, David pleads with God 
don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The point is we cannot glorify God without the help of the Holy Spirit. David couldn't. We can't. And it seems to me that what this psalm is telling us is that there's a difference between knowing a truth as a fact and knowing a truth by experiencing it. Here's my umbrella. I know for a fact that it will protect me in a rain shower, save me from getting wet. That's what umbrellas do, isn't it? But of course I can't experience my umbrella's protection unless I put it up, raise it aloft. Oops. Yeah, isn't that cute? It's the rose window in Notre Dame Cathedral. But I can't experience that protection unless I put my umbrella up. As I say, raise it aloft and get under it. Umbrella above, me below. And I'm ho- I hope I'm not trivializing things too much when I say it's the same with God, in a way. We know from Psalms 1 to 5 and lots of other places in the Bible that the Lord watches over us, blesses us, delivers us, makes us dwell in safety and surrounds us with his favor as with a shield. Those are the facts. But they don't always match our experiences, do they? How often have you felt in turmoil, in anguish? How often have you cried out, as David does here, how long, O Lord, how long? We may know in an intellectual sense that all those things we read about God in Scripture are true, but that's not the same as experiencing him firsthand. We need to raise God aloft. We need to do what it takes to get into that protective relationship with God. Him above, us below. And what does it take? Well, prayer. Talking to God, speaking to him, listening to him, reading the Bible and learning from it, all the while being reliant on the awesome power of the Holy Spirit. So what's, what's our fridge magnet verse from Psalm 6? Well, how about verse 9? The Lord hears my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. Therein lies our promised hope of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Amen.